Good evening, everyone. Uh, the reading this evening is taken from Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to, I think it's 38. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then, then, uh, then let, thank you, then the, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress. Excuse me. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. 
At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Dawn, for reading uh, our passage this evening, which is a, um, a lovely short one, which is good. But the good thing is, not only is it short, it's also very easy to understand, which means that my job here is nice and easy. Um, in case any of you are worried whether that was sarcasm or not, um, this is an extremely challenging and difficult passage. Um, there are a lot of interpretations. There's a lot of ideas about what this passage might be conveying. Um, and it's not always very easy to say which of these interpretations is correct. Theologians have argued over this for centuries, and I have about 20 minutes. Um, and I'm not one of the preeminent uh, theologians of our age. So I'm not necessarily going to be able to give you definitive answers as to what everything in this passage is about. But what I would like to do this evening is to give us three contexts that might be useful when we think about this passage, three angles that might be useful when we're thinking about what's going on, and some things that might help it to understand a little bit more about what's happening. And these are time, history, and the apocalypse. So let's pray before we start. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to us. And we pray now that as I speak and as we listen, would your words be made known here? Would your spirit be at work among each one of us? And will we hear what you have for us this evening? Amen. So the first place we're going to start is with time, um, a nice small topic in and of itself, which I'm sure we can cover in six minutes. Um, and time is an interesting one because it's one where when we think about time, we feel like we have a pretty good understanding of what we mean by this. Um, when we think about time, we think about things like what time does the service start? The service starts at 6.30. It's maybe news to some people, but it does. Um, if you're interested in what time Eleanor is going to be on Radio 4, we know this is at 5.43 uh, every morning this week. Um, and that's what we think about when we think about time. And the Greek word for this is the word chronos. 
uh, from which we get chronological or chronicle. And this refers to time that is measurable or sequential. So when we think about chrono chronologies, we think about everything in order. We think about specific times and places and dates. But this isn't the only word that Greek has for time. There is another word, which is this word kairos. And kairos is a little bit more abstract and tangible, like some of yours interpretations of the start of time of the service. <laughs> And this instead refers to the right moment or time for something to occur. Um, and this is perhaps more tangible with the finishing of the service, because usually we'd expect the service to finish around eight, and that's kind of a chronological thinking of it. But another way of thinking about the end of the service is the service will end at the point when it is right for the service to end, when the talk is finished and we've done our last song and we've had our go in peace um, to love and serve the Lord in the name of Christ, amen. Um, that is the point at which the end of the service happens. And that doesn't necessarily happen at a specific time. Um, another place you can see this, uh, distinguishing of Kronos versus Kairos, is obviously on the back of frozen pizza. Um, so here is a picture of some pizza instructions. And this demonstrates both Kronos and Kairos in its baking instructions. We can see Kronos first in the baking time here. Let the pizza bake for 9 to 11 minutes, depending on the topping. But there's also some kairos in here as well, which is just after it, which you should bake until the crust turns to a light golden brown. And this is, in a nutshell, the difference between chronos and kairos. If you put a pizza in the oven and after eight minutes it's done, you'd take it out. If you put it in for 11 minutes and it's not quite ready, you might leave it in for a bit longer. Chronos is an approximation, in this case, of kairos. The right time to take the pizza out is the point at which the pizza is ready. And so you have these two different notions of time. And when we think about time, we almost always lean towards the former. And this is really important when we think about Jesus here and when he's talking about time. There's two mentions of time uh, in our passage this evening. One in verse 24, where Jesus talks about the times of the Gentiles, and another in verse 8, where Jesus talks about the time is near. He says this. He says, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. In both these places, in verse 24 and verse 8, the word is not chronos, the word is kairos. And this is where we lose something by English only really having this one notion of time. Um, likewise, in verse 29 and 30, we see an example of a parable that Jesus tells to give an idea of this kairos time. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. This is, again, something that doesn't happen at a particular time. You don't set your watch by the point at which the fig tree starts sprouting leaves. That doesn't happen on March the 21st at 4.34 p.m. Um, it happens at the point when it's ready to happen. And I think this is really important because this is the description that Jesus is giving of the times in this passage. And in particular, I think it's really important here that we shouldn't get too caught up and concerned about specific dates and times. Various people throughout history have got caught up in this in various ways. Most recently, uh, in recent memory, uh, Harold Camping predicted uh, in 1994 that the world would end. Uh, when it subsequently didn't, he re-evaluated and discovered that it was actually supposed to end in 2011. So bad news to anyone here who is here after 2011, because it turns out the world ended in May. Um, except that it didn't. And I think the fatal mistake that Harold Camping and so many other people have made when thinking about this is thinking that actually... When Jesus is talking about times, there's some hidden message somewhere in the Bible if you switch days for thousands of years and sort of meander it through, that Jesus is actually answering a chronological question about the time of his return. But that's really not the question that Jesus is asking, and not the question that Jesus is answering, or indeed the question that he's asked. 
He's being asked about the circumstances around his return and what are the things and the signs that we would be able to reserve in order to recognize that this is his time to return. So the first angle I think that's really important to understand on this is that when Jesus is talking about times, he's not necessarily talking about calendar dates and times that you could put into your diary. The second point here is history, because it's also very important to understand the historical context around the time that Jesus is talking about, and in particular, the few years afterwards. Throughout Luke's gospel, we see some examples of tensions between Israel and Rome. And this all comes to the fore in 66 AD with the destruction of the temple. Well, actually, 66 AD is the start of the first Jewish-Roman war. And we have a picture on the next slide of a painting which is called Destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem by Francesco Hayes. And in 66 AD, the start of this war is basically um, the overflowing of all of these tensions that turns out into all-out war. And the most decisive point in, this, in this, um, this moment in history, this war, was in AD 70, when Rome, led by the future emperor Titus, came and besieged Jerusalem. And what they would do, what Rome would do when they were besieging a city, is they would surround the city and they would block off any food from being able to come in. And then they would just wait. In this case, the siege lasted for five months. Um, people inside the city uh, were drawn to murder, to famine, and in some cases, reports of cannibalism. And after five months, eventually, the, the resistance in, in Jerusalem broke down. The Romans came in and destroyed much of the city, including the temple. Hundreds of thousands were taken into, were, were killed. Uh, another 100,000 or so were taken into slavery. And this was naturally a really disturbing and challenging time for Israel. And this is happening in about AD 70, which is about 40 years after when Jesus is describing um, this story here. And it's certainly possible that some of what Jesus is talking about is referring to the destruction of the temple. This is most likely in verses 5 and 6, where Jesus talks about the temple and how it's going to be destroyed, which I think is not a particular stretch to suggest that this might be referring to the destruction of the temple. In verses 5 and 6, he says this, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. So it's very likely that this part of our passage, at least, is referring to the destruction of the temple. It's still fairly likely that other parts of the passage are referring to this as well. For instance, if we look at verse 20, which talks about when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And again, this happened in AD 70. Likewise, in verse 24, it talks about people falling by the sword and being taken as prisoners. Again, this all happened in AD 70. There are other parts of this passage which seem more likely to be more eschatological or more end times uh, in their interpretations. For instance, when verse 27 talks about the coming of the Son of Man, this seems very like, more likely to be referring to Jesus' return, which means that you have a bit of a balance in this passage. Some parts of it are likely to be referring to the destruction of the temple. Some parts are likely to be referring to Jesus' second return. Well, first return, his return, second coming. Um, in any case, the difficulty here is working out which pieces are which, and people will fall on all ends of the spectrum from thinking that the entirety of what Jesus is talking about here is the destruction of the temple to almost all of it being end times style discussions. One interesting possible interpretation is that there's elements of it that maybe are both, that we don't need to necessarily pick one or the other. Um, 
this is not uncommon, actually, in Jewish um, theology and Jewish uh, prophecy. Um, one of the examples of this, if we think about, is Passover. Passover was a historical event that happened hundreds of years before Jesus um, walked on the earth. And yet, even at this time, when Jesus is saying these words a few days before uh, Passover itself, there are a lot of parallels between what happened at Passover and what happened to Jesus on the cross. At Passover, there was the death of a lamb and the blood spared the Israelites and freed them from slavery. And at the time of Jesus' death on the cross, that is exactly the same thing that happened. Jesus' death on the cross and his blood freed each one of us from the slavery of sin and death. And there's a sense in which the Passover is looking forward to the death of Jesus. And in many ways, it's possible that some of the events in AD 70 were also themselves looking forward to Jesus' return. We don't know for certain on that, but what is important to note on this is that it's entirely possible that some of the events in this passage may already have happened. Um, in fact, it's so likely that some of these have happened that some people use the fact that Jesus described the events of the destruction of the temple so accurately that actually the gospel must have been written after those things, which is one of these situations where you really just can't win. Um, but it's important when we read this to not divorce it from the historical context of what was happening in these passages. And thirdly, I want to talk about apocalypse. And here in particular, I want to talk about genre. Because as we'll all know from studying English at school, or studying, as I evidently didn't study English at school, it's really important when we read a passage to understand the genre that it finds itself in. Um, for instance, uh, we all have some familiarity with poetry and the type of language that it involves. But imagine if you were an alien that came down to, um, to church today, uh, if, if you are here, very welcome, um, and you spoke perfect English, but you'd never seen a poem before, and someone showed you Song of Songs verse, uh, chapter 4. You can imagine that you might get a little bit confused when you hear the words being described here, which say this. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your temples behind your veils are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David. You can imagine that the alien might end up with a slightly unusual indication of what we consider conventional beauty standards. And obviously this isn't what the author is referring to, but if we don't have that understanding of the genre, we could easily misinterpret this. Other places include the parables of Jesus. When Jesus tells a parable, he's telling a moral story with a particular message. And so in particular, when Jesus is talking about the Good Samaritan, for instance, it doesn't make sense to ask questions like, what was the name of the Good Samaritan? Where did he come from? What were his parents? What was his job? Those kind of things, because that's not the point of the parable. The parable isn't telling a story about a real person. And so it doesn't make sense to ask these questions. And then you imagine what it would be like potentially for us to come to a genre that we're not familiar with, that we've never really spent too much time with. And the genre here is the genre of apocalyptic literature, which is a genre we don't really have these days. There are some examples in the Bible, notably the second half of Daniel and the whole book of Revelation are examples of apocalyptic literature. And when we come to those, these can be particularly challenging passages. And they're at least there in part because we don't understand the genre trappings of apocalyptic literature. And there are other parts um, throughout the Bible as well, of which this passage is one, that have elements of apocalypse to them. So what are some of the themes of apocalyptic literature that might be relevant for our passage this evening? 
Well, the first and the one that we're most familiar with is that they depict destructive events. This is where we get our word apocalypse from. But there's more to it than that. The events in apocalyptic literature are often treated as imminent, so they're described as happening very, very soon, and that doesn't necessarily indicate that they are. The imagery is often vivid and symbolic in nature, so these don't necessarily depict actual things, and particularly if you read some of the descriptions in Revelation with lots of uh, candlesticks and stands and beasts with wings and eyes, and it's all very, very vivid imagery, and it's very deliberately so. In fact, the meanings here are often deliberately obscured, so they're presented in such a way that is intended to be surprising and challenging. And these are all the trappings of apocalyptic literature, that if we don't understand that, then when we come to some passages, we may end up interpreting them not in the way that was intended. And there are some bits of this passage which seem to be apocalyptic in nature. For instance, if we look at verses 10 and 11, when Jesus talks about nations rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, fearful events and great signs from heaven. And later on in verses 25 and 26, Jesus talks about there being signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the seas. People fainting from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, where the heavenly bodies will be shaken. There's again a lot of vivid imagery here. And although we don't know for certain that some of this is apocalyptic in nature, it's certainly possible. And therefore, we should also know when we're reading this passage that maybe some of these events might not be intended to be taken and read and interpreted literally. Can't guarantee that for sure, as with a lot of these things, we can't be certain. But if we read this knowing that there is this genre of apocalyptic literature, this can maybe help us to understand some of the things that Jesus is talking about here and some of the things that might have been expected and taken for granted by his audience. And so these are three points um, about time, history, and the apocalypse that allow us to have some potential angles on interpreting what is a very challenging passage. And to close, I want to take us away from the bits that are uncertain and the bits that are challenging and pick up a couple of things in this passage that we can be more sure about and have more certainty on. I think there are two camps that generally people will come into when it comes to thinking about the end times. People will either obsess about it an unhealthy amount or not think about it at all. And I think there's something in here for both camps here. For people who find this particularly overwhelming and worrying, the message here from Jesus is that we don't necessarily need to worry about these things because Jesus will be with us. We can see this in aspects of our passage. For instance, the first half of chapter nine, uh, verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. And later on, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or to contradict. There's a lot that's terrifying in this passage. And frankly, if you look at the world today, there's a lot that's terrifying out in the world that's going on. And there is an element of comfort, I think, to be found in the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from this. It doesn't pretend that these things don't happen or shouldn't happen but instead it talks about these being necessary steps for the ushering in of the kingdom of God, however that looks and whatever that means. And in particular, when we find ourselves in the midst of these, however we might find ourselves, we know that we are not alone, and we know that Jesus is with us. And for the second camp of people, people who are inclined maybe not to think about this at all, there's a challenge in this passage to not get caught up in the things of this world, 
because Jesus will return. Verse 34 of our passage, it says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Elsewhere in the Bible, it refers to the return of Jesus as coming like the thief in the night. Or earlier in Luke, we had the parable of the watchful servant, where a servant's master goes away, the servant basically doesn't expect him to be coming back, and then when the master comes back suddenly in the night, the servant is surprised. What we do know, even if we don't know exactly when Jesus is coming, is that he is coming back. And it may be in our lifetime, and it may not be, but we should be prepared either way, and we should remember that Jesus is coming back. I want to finish with a story that happened in the 1700s. Um, This was in Connecticut in America, and on the 19th of May, 1780, this was a day known as New England's Darkest Day. Now, often when you hear about Darkest Days, you think about something which has been heavy emotionally, but this was a very, very literal Darkest Day. There was some natural phenomenon that still isn't fully understood that meant that basically at about midday, the whole place just went completely pitch black as if it was midnight, and this lasted for about 12 hours. At the time, um, the Congress was meeting uh, in Connecticut, and Congress, when this happened very, very suddenly, the beautiful day just turned into complete darkness, a lot of them were panicking, and a lot of them thought that this was the return of Jesus. And so, because they were politicians, they were asking for an adjournment of the session that they were in. Um, And the leader of the session was a man called Abraham Davenport, and he said these words um, in request to this adjournment. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment, and if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. And in so doing that, the session continued, and the darkness cleared about 12, well, the following day, I think it was, it was all cleared. But the point is here, we don't know when Jesus is returning. He may return in our lifetime, he may not. But we know that he is coming back. And for us, I think it's important for us to make sure that we are found doing our duty when that day comes. So as we come into land, would you stand with me and we'll pray into some of these things. Perhaps uh, Judith, if Judith and band could come back ready for our final song. Because I know that this passage has been very challenging and there will no doubt still be lots of questions that you'll have about it. But we can be reassured of the return of Jesus and we can be reassured of his presence among us. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is to us. And we thank you for all that you reveal about yourself to us through it. We pray particularly now for those of us here who find this particularly worrying or distressing. Would you send your spirit of comfort, of peace, and of rest to us, reminding us of your presence alongside us and your love for us. And for those of us maybe who have lost sight of your return, who think that because you haven't returned yet that you're not going to, or think that it's not going to happen anytime soon, would you help us to remember your presence among us? Would you remind us if there are any parts of our lives, any things that we're doing that mean that we aren't bowing our knee to you as Lord? Pray particularly if there's anyone here who has not done that before and for whom this is the right time to make that decision. We pray that you would be putting that on their hearts. And for those of us who have areas where we aren't fully submitting to you as Lord, would you help us to recognize those 
and to serve you through the way that we do things. And Father, we just pray that if there's anything in particular that you have for us this evening, if you have anything to whisper to us in the silence, would you speak it to us now and help us to hear your word for us? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Father, we thank you for the love that you have shown for each one of us, the love that you have for each person here. We thank you that you've demonstrated it chiefly through your son on the cross, and we thank you that you show it to each one of us each day. And we pray now that as we spend time following you and serving you and looking forward to your coming again, would you give us hearts willing to serve you and hearts willing to love you? In Jesus' name, amen.